Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him, are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask His guidance and direction on that study. Father, we are so thankful for Your Word that it is uh, light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path, and it is that which gives us the framework, the information we need, so that in every area of life we can make decisions that are consistent with the way you have created things. It is through the knowledge of your word that we have wisdom, and wisdom is the product of a soul that is saturated with your word. So, Father, as we continue our study in uh, Second Kings now, we pray that you would guide and direct us in the way we look at your word this morning and that the principles of application uh, are made clear to us, God the Holy Spirit applying this to our own soul and our own spiritual life and that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Again, we're in 2 Kings chapter 2, 2 Kings chapter 2, and we're focusing on these key character qualities that should be part of our spiritual life. In whatever area of life you may find yourself in, you have some realm of leadership. Even if that leadership may be, uh, leadership arena may be, uh, relatively narrow, relatively small, we all have leadership in terms of our families, in terms of, uh, someone at work perhaps, in terms of something broader. Uh, perhaps we have large areas of responsibility and leadership. And as a believer, one of the qualities that is produced in us by God the Holy Spirit, one that is also as well a result of our own positive volition, has to do with this whole concept of perseverance. Last time I introduced this under four basic words, perseverance, persistence, spiritual tenacity, and aggressiveness. And I think that's important for us to think about these things in terms of your, in terms of our own life, in terms of how we would rate ourselves in our spiritual life. Some of you, I don't have an idea, any idea what report cards look like today, but they are different from where they were uh, back when I taught school or was in school. But back in years past, they used to have grades for your academic subjects on one side, at least in elementary school. And on the other side, they had various uh, character qualities or qualities of citizenship, things of that nature, whatever they wanted to call them. And usually on that side of the page, you would get a check, a plus, or a minus. Sometime you ought to do a little self-evaluation, take the fruits of the Spirit and a few other of the virtues that you have emphasized in the spiritual life, like perseverance, and rate yourself every now and then. Don't be too hard on yourself. We all, uh, we all fail to meet up with what we know is the absolute standard, but we ought to see a measure of development in those areas. And perseverance, and these four, actually these four qualities that I'm emphasizing are all very close to each other, and they really do relate to our own volition. In that sense, it's not produced by the Holy Spirit, but it is. The Holy Spirit does strengthen it once we make those 
those decisions. So we have to press on. That's really what perseverance means. I'm not talking about uh, the doctrine that is sometimes expressed as the person who is truly a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will necessarily persevere until the end. I'm talking about just the quality of endurance that's emphasized as part of the spiritual life, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So perseverance basically means to press on in our spiritual growth in spite of difficulties or discouragement, not being satisfied with the status quo. Persistence is to continue doggedly or obstinately on course in spite of difficulty, opposition, or failures. It's interesting that as you think about some of these qualities, that there are qualities you know that are part of your character that both have, have both strengths and weaknesses. If you're in carnality and you have the quality of being stubborn, that can express itself in a rather negative, unpleasant, even obnoxious way. But if you are in fellowship and you have that quality of character that we often call stubbornness, that means you may be willing to hang in there even when things are really tough because you just have that sense of sticking with something no matter how difficult it may be. So persistence is that idea of continuing doggedly or obstinately on course in spite of whatever obstacles or difficulties you might face. Spiritual tenacity, hanging in there, hanging on, unwilling to let go, to give up, holding on firmly to your spiritual priorities and the Word of God, no matter what pressures come in your life to distract you, trying to keep that single-minded focus that the reason you are saved is to serve the Lord, to be able to serve the Lord. We have to do that from a position of strength, which means we have a solid knowledge of His will, and which comes from His Word in our life. And then the last way I express this is in terms of being spiritually aggressive, spiritually aggressive. We used to talk about this as being a fanatic, but that has certain negative overtones today. Uh, the devil always likes to take good words and start giving them bad meanings in order to try to destroy, uh, <clears throat> destroy the Christian life. But that's the idea is that it is a fanatic is the guy who sits down every uh, Sunday afternoon and watches his favorite football team even when the record is 0 and 10. He still roots for them, hoping desperately that they will uh, finally win. That is a fan, short for fanatic. Okay? So uh, spiritually aggressive has that concept of, of zeal. Another word that we often hear used in a somewhat pejorative manner about people when it's applied to their religious views. If they are zealous about their studies in school or if they are uh, zealous in the, their pursuit of someone of the opposite sex for marriage, those are good values. But if it's zealous for their spiritual life, then they must have a screw loose somewhere and they're going to be a, a, a fanatic or a terrorist or some kind of a radical wacko. Uh, it shows a energy and enthusiasm for the Word of God, because if you believe this is true, then it should be more real to you than anything else in life. It's more important to you than your job. It's more important to you than your family. It's more important to you than anything else, because you know that ultimately the one thing that that defines for you your involvement in all of those other areas is that relationship with God. And so you put that at the forefront of your life, no matter what other things uh, may come up. All right. We looked at that, and then we began to work through the passage in Second Kings, and it starts off with a note that, that we're, makes us aware of the fact that God is about to take Elijah to heaven. I want you to pay attention to the summary there in verse 1 because that states that he is going to take Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but uh, many of us who have sung uh, certain uh, spirituals when we were growing up, uh, or maybe you have uh, seen artwork in the 
in various museums. The image that you have of Elijah being taken to heaven is not in a whirlwind. You have an image of him being taken to heaven in a chariot. You're wrong. We'll see that later, but just maybe that will help keep you awake this morning if you stayed out too late last night. That's not what the text says at all. It says he was taken to heaven by a whirlwind, which is actually a storm. Now, there's a transition of leadership that takes place here that is that is very important. There are many transitions in life, and one of the transitions that occurs is that transition of leadership in uh, in Christianity, transitions from one pastor to another pastor, one generation of leaders to another generation of leaders. Sometimes these transitions are handled well, and sometimes these transitions are not handled well. Sometimes these transitions don't appear to be handled well for uh, reasons that we may not understand. What I'm thinking of is the transition of leadership from the apostles who were alive throughout much of the first century, but by 95 A.D., the last of the apostles, the apostle John, died. And by then, there was already a transition into the next generation of leaders in the church, and they were the are often referred to as the apostolic fathers. They're called that way that because they were close to the apostles. In many cases, they were taught and trained by the apostles, but they themselves were not apostles. They did not have the uh, gift of God, the Holy Spirit, in the same way that the apostles did because of their unique ministry, and they could not write under the inspiration and authority of God, the Holy Spirit, and so uh, their thinking was not at the same level of inerrant, infallible truth as the apostles. So there was a marked mark decline in the quality of their understanding of doctrine after the death of the last apostle, because from that point on, the dynamic that was to govern the church age was in force, and that is the study of the word of God. God does not give us an understanding of his word by simple osmosis. We, the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher is not a gift where you can somehow just open the Bible and read it and know what it says. Uh, you have to learn the original languages. You have to study uh, theology. You have to study the Word. And it takes time and meditation. If God had given it to us in some simple simple way or some sort of intuitive understanding for, uh, for those who are uh, gifted in the area of communication, then you, you would just say, oh, well, all I have to do is fold my hands and wait, and somehow God will zap the meaning into my head. Now, that idea comes out of mysticism. But that's not what God's, the way God's word is. And what you understand when you go through the study of church history is that men who have been serious students of the word grow and progress in their understanding and clarity of God's word. And in those early generations of the apostolic fathers, they were not clear uh, on many things. In fact, in that first generation, they often simply quoted scripture in what we might call uh, an unanalyzed way. So they said the right things, but if you ask them, well, over here you said Jesus is God, and over there you said there's one God, and you have the Father God and the Holy Spirit's God, what do you mean by all of that? Well, they weren't answering those. Nobody's asking those kind of questions, and so they weren't answering those kinds of questions. So it's a rather unanalyzed, unsophisticated understanding of doctrine, whereas those who, the apostles who preceded them clearly understood much more than what they wrote. And so the purpose, uh, the, the growth, let's say, of the understanding of God's word in the church age progressed as men persevered and were persistent and in their study of God's word in coming to understand it so that each generation built upon the previous one and came to under, understand that. So you have these generational changes that have taken place down through the history of Christianity. One leader of one generation is often surpassed by a leader in the next generation because he builds upon what the previous leader uh, had done. And one of the problems that people run into is that we tend to get involved in personality cults and we worship certain 
key leaders. You have some who are so focused on one or another Reformation leader that their theology never has really advanced beyond the theology of a Calvin or a Luther or a Zwingli. Others may focus on later church leaders, anyone from uh, <clears throat> Menno Simons, those, his followers of the Mennonites, to others that come along later on, whether it has to do with uh, dispensationalists and Darby and Schofield and Chafer or uh, some other uh, leader. So there are these transitions that take place, and we see that in the midst of those transitions, there is always a challenge and a test for the new leadership. And so Elijah is testing Elisha in terms of his perseverance, his uh, persistence, and his spiritual tenacity? Does he really want to carry out the responsibilities that God is giving him? And we know that uh, that transfer of power is going from, and authority is going from Elijah to Elisha because God had announced that to Elijah back in First um, uh, Kings chapter 19. But he is nevertheless still testing Elisha to see if he is ready, and so he takes him on this journey that we saw last time where they began up north at the Gilgal that I believe was located up near Shechem. This is the Gilgal that is mentioned uh, as far back as uh, Genesis uh, <clears throat> chapter 12, near where near the oaks there where... Um, Oaks of Moriah, where Abraham first uh, pitched his tent in the land that God had promised him and built an altar to the Lord. So each of these sites are significant because of where they, uh, of what they said in terms of God's relationship to Israel and the promises that God had made for the land. And remember, as a prophet, Elijah and Elisha both are representing God in terms of his covenant responsibilities and the covenant responsibilities of, of the nation. And so they go from one location to another, first uh, Gilgal, which was up north, and then Bethel, which was the next place that Abraham had gone to where he built an altar, uh, worshipped the Lord. God reaffirmed the covenant to him there, reaffirmed the covenant to his uh, to uh, uh, Jacob there, his grandson, and then they went to Jericho. And at Jericho, you're about maybe 15 miles from the... Uh, ford where you would cross the Jordan River. And at each of these locations, there's something that comes up to distract uh, Elisha and to challenge him. And at each of these locations, Elijah said to him, well, stay here and I will go on. And Elisha shows his persistence and he says, no, I'm not going to stop. Uh, I may be tired, the journey may be long, whatever the distractions may be, I'm not going to let them deter me. I will go on and I will not leave you. When he came to the second location at Bethel, the distraction uh, ramped up a little bit and there were the uh, sons of the prophets there, which was this group associated with the, with the prophets in terms of support. Some of them were young men in training and they had their focus on Elijah and they're upset. Elijah's leaving us. Don't you know that? Why aren't you upset like we are? And so Elisha said, keep silent. You know, don't distract me with non-essentials. Don't get me, don't try to get me focused on things that are not important. It is, it's good that Elijah is going on because there's always that forward movement in the plan of God and this is not something for us to uh, become distracted over. And so they went from Bethel to Jericho. Verse 5, we read, the, Now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you, uh, from over you today? And again, it's that same distraction. They are being persistent in their negative volition and in their uh, desire to uh, distract uh, Elijah, I mean Elisha, from carrying on. And so these Sons of the prophets numbered 50. In verse 7, we, we read, 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan. This is about where we stopped last time. Now, at this point, we're going to get into the uh, translation and the transfer of Elijah to heaven. 
and the transfer of power and authority from Elijah to Elisha. And in verse 8 we read, Now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water, and it was divided this way and that, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Now, this is a scene that reminds us of a couple of scenes earlier in the Scripture. First of all, we are reminded of the parting of the Red Sea uh, under Moses, that Moses took his staff, and he took that staff, and 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 stuck it in the waters to divide the waters of the Red Sea. God parted the waters of the Red Sea. Dry, the ground was immediately dry, and the Israelites were able to cross over. This took quite some time because, remember, there's about 2 million Israelites, 2 to 2.5 million that are crossing over. The parting would have been, the area of parting would have been quite wide. It would have been much wider than the expansion of uh, I-10, this probably may have been a mile or two uh, wide to allow that many people to cross over in eight to ten hours. So it took some time. And then once they crossed over, of course, the uh, the soldiers, the chariots of Pharaoh were in hot pursuit. And as soon as the Israelites got up onto high ground, then God released the waters and they came down and completely wiped out the military power of Egypt. And Egypt is not referred to in the Scripture for uh, several hundred years. There is this time of silence because after going through the plagues, which wiped out many of their uh, flocks, their cattle, wiped out the, the death of the firstborn, Egypt was an, almost a non-entity after the uh, exodus. So they virtually disappear from history for several hundred years, and the focus goes on Israel. This allows Israel a place, a time to build and grow in the land without worrying about uh, military powers on their southern flank. So uh, the second event that we think of is when the Israelites in the next generation, the conquest generation, Cross the Jordan into the land. And this is marked by a covenant renewal ceremony that took place at another location called Gilgal, which was just there by, uh, by Jericho, where this new generation, not the generation that came out of Egypt, which was disobedient and disciplined by having to spend 40 years in the desert, in the wilderness, without coming into the land. But this generation was a generation of obedient believers, and there is a reconfirmation of the Abrahamic covenant marked by the circumcision ceremony at Gilgal, and then when they had conquered first Jericho, then uh, Ai, and then Bethel, they went up to Shechem, to Mount uh, Gerizim and Ebal, and they had a rehearsal of the blessings and the cursings of the Mosaic Law. And so all of this speaks of that, those promises of God given to, in relationship to the land so that the ministry that is being passed on from Elijah to Elisha is a ministry that focuses back on those covenants. God defines uh, that ministry in that particular way. Now, Elijah here uh, doesn't use a staff as, as was used by Moses to part the waters of the Red Sea. He uses this mantle. He had first acquired this mantle back, in, or the first time we saw it was back in 1 Kings 19, 15 through 18, when he was had fled south to Mount Horeb, which is also uh, Mount Sinai. And this mantle is what he uses to part the Red Sea. There's a certain symbolism that is going on here, is that at that time in uh, 1 Kings 19, uh, God has told Elijah that he is still part of the uh, instrument that God is using to bring discipline on the nation. It, Moses' staff is also a rod, is an instrument of discipline. And it is this mantle that Elijah has that he's also going to pass on to Elisha, showing that both of these prophets function as the rod or the staff of God's discipline 
on the nation. As a matter of fact, this is showing that uh, Elisha carries on that same particular ministry which God had announced back in 1 Kings 19. So you can look at those verses up on the up on the screen. It was at Mount Horeb that the Lord said to Elijah, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. So there is an authorization as part of that role as the, as the prophet to execute the enemies of God because this must be viewed and looked at in terms of the battle that is going on, the broader spiritual warfare battle that is going on and the battle within the history, uh, uh, within Israel itself has these spiritual dimensions. And so these have the right to kill because that's part of implementing the discipline upon Israel. So Elisha will inherit that authority and the power is symbolized by uh, the mantle, which is being used as a rod, just as uh, Moses' staff was used as a rod. Second Kings 2.9 goes on to say, And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you before I'm taken away from you? Again, this is a test. He's tested him in terms of his desire to do the right thing, to persevere, to persevere in terms of his mission and not to be turned from one side to the other. And now he says, okay, what is it that you want? And one thing we see here is it's not wrong to want certain things in terms of spiritual blessings in our lives. Now, God may not answer those prayer requests, but we don't know what the answers are before we ask for them. And we see something here that there is uh, a value to a certain spiritual ambition, and that's what uh, Elisha shows here is he has a spiritual ambition to be the very best that he can be and to be used by God in his ministry to the fullest. He doesn't want a God's mission limited by his own lack of desire or his own lack of will. And so as they cross, as he answers this, the last part of the verse, Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Now, this is a significant statement. He is not just being uh, greedy. He recognizes that he has a mission and a purpose, and so he wants uh, all of the power that Elisha has and more. But the idea of the double portion doesn't focus on that as much as it focuses on the transfer of authority from one to the other, and a recognition of Elisha as being the preeminent, uh, the preeminent follower, the preeminent uh, prophet succeeding uh, Elijah. For this concept of double portion relates to inheritance rights, and so the imagery here is that of Elijah as the father. Uh, which Elisha calls him later on as he is departing. He calls him, my father, my father. So there is this picture here of Elijah, Elijah as the father and Elisha as the firstborn son. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, 17, we see the principle of the double portion given to the firstborn. That verse reads, but he shall acknowledge uh, the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has. So it is a recognition of the preeminence of Elisha over the other prophets who may try to claim some sort of position. And so this will be mean that there will be uh, evidence, corollary evidence in Elisha's ministry from God through the miraculous demonstrating that, the, that Elisha is definitely uh, God's choice to succeed Elijah. So what Elisha is asking for is that he be able to carry on the ministry that God had given Elijah, and he, this will be symbolized by the double portion of blessing that would go to the 
uh, go to the elder son. Now, Elijah recognizes that this is not his to give, that God has to be the one to confirm this. And so his answer in verse 10 is, you've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. God is going to be the one to answer you, and you'll know it because if you see me when I'm being taken and transferred from earth to heaven, then you will know that God has answered your request in the affirmative. But if you do not see what transpires, then you will know that God has not uh, honored your request. And so we're told then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire separating the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Now, see, he's taken up by the whirlwind, not by the chariot. The chariot and the horses have a significant imagery that is then conveyed um, uh, later on, and I'll point that out. First of all, on the whirlwind, we see that this is a a storm. We would translate it perhaps a thunderstorm, a tornado, something of that nature, but it is a massive storm that comes along and takes Elijah up to heaven. Uh, you see the same kind of thing in Nahum chapter 1, verse 3. I bet you haven't looked at Nahum recently. A couple of good promises in the first chapter. Nahum is one of those books that isn't taught very much because uh, it is all about, it's God's prophecy through Nahum of the complete destruction of Nineveh. It has only one verse that just generally alludes to uh, future end-time events. The entire uh, oracle of Nahum is uh, was given about maybe 630 to 650 B.C., and in 612 is when uh, Nineveh was destroyed. And so we usually don't preach too much from the book of Nahum. But Nahum 1.7 is a great promise on trust. But in Nahum 1.3 we read, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, will not at all acquit the wicked. That was a principle as eventually judgment comes. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. So this depicts the power of God and that he controls even the most, what seems to us to be the most uncontrollable uh, weather, and the clouds are dust of his feet. But see, there is a, another uh, picture that occurs in, uh, that comes along here in Second Kings 2.12. 2 Kings 2.12, as Elisha sees uh, the storm, sees this, uh, chariot that comes. The chariot is a picture of power. It's associated with military might and military power. And as Elisha saw it, he cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. And see what this depicts is that it is uh, this identification between, the, between military power and military might and the ministry of the prophet. He is saying that it is really Elijah, Elijah in his ministry as a prophet who is the real source of security and power in Israel because he represents God. It is God that gives security to the nation. It is not their, the arm of flesh. It's not their military power. It's not the number of chariots or horses that they have. It is God. And so it's, it's clear in the Hebrew that this is all addressed to Elijah, and he is calling Elijah this. He says, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. Elijah is the real power, the real military strength of the nation because he represents God. And then he expresses his grief by taking hold of his own clothes and tearing them into two uh, pieces. Now, <clears throat> there's a verse that corresponds to this that documents what I'm saying here, that he is not talking about the fact that Elijah is going up in this chariot. He goes up in the whirlwind. The chariot is there as a symbol of something else. Second Kings 13, 14, we see the end of Elisha's life. And we read, When Elisha became sick with the illness of which he was to die, 
Joash, the king of Israel, northern kingdom, came down to him and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. See, there's no chariot of Israel or horsemen showing up there for him to see. He is calling Elisha the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. The same thing that, uh, that Elisha did to Elijah. It, he is assigning to the ministry of the word of God the real source of strength and power and security in the nation. It is not in uh, human efforts. This is something we always have to remember. Uh, this is another election time. We have an election coming up in a couple of uh, weeks. We're going to have another. People are already thinking about the election next year, November, and it's important to be involved in elections. But political solutions are not the solution to the problems that we have in our nation. Military solutions are not ultimately the solutions that we have. The real solution, the real security that uh, any nation has, whether it's Israel in the Old Testament or the United States now, is in the Lord, the relationship that we have to the Lord, and that is what gives us security, that's what gives us power, and that is the only real solution. And until there is a change spiritually in this nation, there will be no real security and there will be no real solution because that is the only solution that has any eternal, uh, any eternal value. So we see this magnificent, dramatic event of this storm that comes along, sweeps up Elijah. Elisha is taken up into heaven, and Elisha witnesses the entire event. And this is seen in verse, uh, verse 13. He also then, after he had torn his robe, after he had expressed his own grief, he takes up the mantle of Elijah. He does not dwell upon the grief or the fact that now he cannot see his mentor again. He takes up the mantle of Elijah, which is the sign of his authority and power as the successor to Elijah uh, in his prophetic ministry. And he went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. And now God is going to give several um, miracles that begin here and extend through the next couple of chapters that will, uh, that will confirm the authority of Elisha. He took, first of all, he took the mantle of, of Elijah in verse 14 that had fallen from him and struck the water. So he does the same thing in reverse. He comes back, he rolls up the mantle, strikes the water of the Jordan. The Jordan uh, separates and Elisha crosses over on dry ground. Then when he gets on the western side, the western bank, and he goes towards uh, Jericho, remember those 50 sons of the prophets are still down there watching. And when they, the sons of the prophet who are from Jericho saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. They understood that he now had that power because they witnessed what happened as he came back across across the Jordan. They came to meet him, and they bowed down before him, a recognition of his authority. But they don't quite get it, verse 16, because they didn't see what happened. See, only Elisha saw Elijah being taken to heaven. They just saw probably the thunderstorm and the fact that Elijah is not with him anymore. So now they're going to put pressure on Elisha, make him feel guilty. They are going to uh, try to manipulate his emotions, and he finally has to yield to them because they say, you just left him out there to rot in the desert. How terrible. Now, even though Elisha had seen Elijah go to him, finally he just yields to them. Uh, sometimes it's better to yield and to be able to get on because nothing spiritual was at stake. So he's, they, um, uh, they continue to press on. Look, there's 50 of us. Let them go and search for your master, lest perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or, um, or into, the, uh, into the desert. Let's see, that's verse 16. So the end of that should be cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And I left off the last line. And he said, you shall not send anyone. So he resists that. You don't need to send anyone. I saw him go to heaven. 
But, verse 17, but when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send them. Therefore they sent 50 men, and they searched for three days, but did not find him. And when they came back, for he had stayed in Jericho, uh, he said to them, did I not say to you, don't go? And he reinforces the fact that uh, he's the one who's in authority, and they need to listen to him. Verse 19, then the men of the city said, please notice the situation of this city is um, pleasant as the Lord sees, but the water's bad and the ground is barren. Now this takes us back to the curses, the judgments in the Mosaic law, that when the nation is in rebellion against God, then the wombs would be barren and the fruits and the, and the fields would be barren and there would be no production uh, in the land. And so this is Jericho now that, remember, was left unreconstructed after its destruction during the conquest until one man came along uh, during the time of Ahab's reign and he rebuilt it. He didn't care about the curse that his firstborn would die when he began to uh, reconstruct and when he finished his uh, youngest would die, but that's exactly what happened. He had no care or concern for his children. He was more concerned about his success in rebuilding Jericho. So now Jericho has been rebuilt, but it still has problems. The water is not potable, and this is a picture of the spiritual barrenness of the northern kingdom. But it is through Elisha that God is going to be disciplining the northern kingdom and bringing them back to some level of spiritual production, hopefully. That's the goal. So Elisha will depict this. In this little episode, he calls for a new bowl. It hasn't been tarnished by anything else. It is new. It is pristine. It is without flaw. And he puts salt in it. And so they brought that to him. And then he went out to the source of the water. He cast the salt there and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from it there shall be no more death or barrenness. Again, this is a picture that it is only God who can bring life out of death. It is only God who can bring spiritual life into your life that, that began when you were spiritually dead. It is only God who can regenerate those who are born dead in their trespasses and sins. So this is a picture of the fact that it is only God that can solve our problems and he has solved the greatest problem we face, which is sin, uh, at, with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, spiritual death can be completely reversed in your life, and you can be born again. So the water, he says, was healed. And it still remains that way to this day, the writer says. So we don't know when he wrote, maybe uh, two or three hundred years later when he collated this, but this is the writer saying, making an editorial observation. So the water remains healed to this day, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke again, emphasizing that these events in Scripture are not uh, not just legend, they're not myth, they're not made up. They have a, they're grounded in real history. And he said, I can take you down to that well even today, and the waters are still fresh and potable. So then Elijah continues his journey, reversing the original course. In verse 23, he, we read, then he went up from there to Bethel. And as he was uh, going up the road, some youths came from the city and mocked him and said to him, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. Now, I don't want anybody reaching up and checking the amount of hair on their pate right now. But this is one of those uh, unusual passages in the Scripture. What in the world is going on here with these uh, nasty little juvenile delinquents coming out of Bethel and mocking Elijah? And what seems to be the problem with him being uh, bald-headed? Now, it is possible that Elijah was literally bald. But that is not uh, necessary. This more than likely is the use of a pejorative or insulting uh, idiom to Elijah, recognizing uh, Elisha rather, uh, emphasizing the fact that they do not uh, they do not accept his authority. Uh, 
It's based on a play of words in the passage in chapter, uh, in, in verse 3 of this chapter and in verse 5, the sons of the prophets had informed Elisha that Elijah, his master, the master over him was about to die. Now that word for master is a Hebrew word that literally means, uh, the one over your head. The one over your head, that's the person in authority over you, is the one over your head. And so when the one over your head is removed, then you have nothing over your head, so you are bald. And so this would be a play on words based on uh, that idea that he had lost the one in authority over him. He is now without a master, so he would be figuratively bald. What they are saying is, you're nobody. Elijah we knew. Elijah had the power of God. Uh, Elijah we respected, but you're a nobody. You don't have, your head is gone and you are left with nothing. So they're refusing to accept the transition of authority, the transition of leadership. And so they are taunting him and ridiculing him as being uh, impotent now that Elijah is gone. Now this then gives us an understanding of what transpires next. If this isn't some sort of serious breach of etiquette and disrespect for the authority of the messenger of God, then what happens next would, would seem to be rather, uh, rather harsh and uh, un- unusual. But Elisha has to reinforce his authority. So he turns around in verse 24. Now, one other thing. Remember, this is Bethel. When Jeroboam became king, Jeroboam I, after the division between the northern and southern kingdom, Jeroboam recognized that he would have problems in the northern kingdom if everybody's trotting down to Jerusalem uh, several times a year in order to worship at the temple. So he set up his own alternate religion, and he set up a, uh, a golden calf in the northern extremity of the nation at Dan and in the southern extremity at Bethel. So this is the site of the uh, the false temple to the golden calf at Bethel. So this is a center of apostasy. So these youths that are coming out, these juvenile delinquents, would be involved in all of the false worship that's going on there in Bethel. So they are clearly in spiritual uh, rebellion, and they reject the authority of, of Elisha. And so he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them. This isn't a juju black magic curse. This is a judgment. That's what how curse is used in the Scripture. He's not putting the evil eye on them. He is saying this is God's judgment. That's how curse is used throughout Scripture. So he pronounced a judgment on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. Doesn't kill them, just messes them up a while. This is a sign of discipline upon them because they have rejected the messenger of God and shown this high level of disrespect for him. And so we read in verse 25, Then he went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Now the point of all of this is to show that ultimately the real source of security for us as individuals and <clears throat> for a nation, and the nation Israel is the Lord. Uh, David rehearses this in Psalm 18:2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. There is nothing wrong with a nation having military power, but that is not the source of their strength. Their source of their strength is the relationship with God. There's nothing wrong with you as an individual having education, having an alarm system on your home, having a, an alarm on your car, these other things. But that's not your real source of security, your real source of protection. Our real source of security and protection is the Lord. This is the same thing that uh, Nahum is emphasizing in Nahum chapter 1, emphasizing the power of God. He's the one who has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. God is above all of these uh, negative circumstances. Verse 4, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry, dries up all the rivers. Bashan, that's the um, area north of, uh, the, uh, excuse me, west, east, 
of the Sea of Galilee, the area we now call the Golan Heights. Bashan and Carmel wither. The flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. That's a great promise. That is a promise that we have as believers, that our only real defense, our only real protection, our only real security is in God. For the unbeliever, the principle is that the only one who can protect you in time of judgment is the Lord. And Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins. The same God of grace who brought, who restored the barren dead water of the wells in Jericho is the same God who can restore life to your spiritually dead uh, soul and your spiritually dead life. He is the one who regenerates us and gives us new life. And then having given us new life, he is the one who continues to watch over us and continue continues to protect us with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to study this passage, to be reminded of your power, to be reminded that history marches on, that we move from one generation to another, and yet you always have leaders that you supply for each generation. And there are these transitions of power and leadership uh, that we see just as there is the transition from Elijah to Elisha, later from Paul to the early leaders of the church. There continue to be these transitions, and yet we recognize that it is you that controls all of these things and that therefore our real source of security, strength, and power needs to be uh, focused upon you, uh, not upon uh, individuals, not upon earthly circumstances. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died for your sins. When he hung there on the cross between heaven and earth, God the Father judicially poured out upon him your sins so that he paid that penalty so that you could have eternal life by simply trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the things that we've studied today and that we might be constantly reminded that you are our fortress, our stronghold. You are a present help in times of trouble. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.